Let me go ahead and um, start off. I've actually had some classes this small, so it's not too unusual, but a little bit strange. Coming up, we have uh, homework one due next week. So again, make sure you've been looking at those. Again, don't wait till the night before because that is one that you don't want to put off. It is 15 questions. It takes you a more than just a uh, more than just an hour or so to sit there and try to get done properly. So hopefully you've been looking at those as you go. We'll have finished all the material for it today. So I'll, have, I'll be through everything through it so you can start look, you can look at the rest of that this week. If you have questions on it, of course I don't see you again until it's due, so you can ask me next Tuesday if you're turning it in later. Um, but if you're going to um, if you have any other questions, feel free to email me like over the weekend if you're looking at something. Um, I, again, I teach online, so I'm, I don't just teach once the class is done. I'm not done. I'm still teaching classes. I'm still monitoring my email. So if you send me an email over the weekend, I'll get it and I'll respond to you. Uh, the only thing I wanted to put a reminder of that is that uh, there's no late submission on that one. Normally, I said you can submit late for partial credit. But once that is due, which would be the 19th at 6 a.m., I'm going to release an answer key for you. And obviously, once I do that, I'm not going to take it for credit. So make sure you have it in before 6 o'clock, because once that releases, I'm just going to have the, the thing locked, and you won't be able to submit uh, things for credit. So even if you're not done for any reason, if you don't get all the questions done, submit what you got is better than, better than nothing. But I want you to have that so you can review, because the exam is coming up. So. And I'm not as likely to get through, if they're not coming in until Wednesday morning, I'm probably not going to get them all graded and get them back to you and have you have time to review them before the exam anyway. Um, also coming up next week, we have the three review quizzes for the first lesson. So those are all available until class starts on Thursday next week. So you can take all three of those. You can take them as many times as you want. And yeah. Yeah, that's fine. Um, yeah, so you can take them as many times as you want. Uh, you do get extra credit for them. So whatever your last grade was, you get one-tenth of a point per question you got right. So you could get up to three points extra credit for those. So definitely go take them at least, even if you only get you know, a few tenths of a point. It's something that adds to your grade towards the, at the end of the semester. So it will add in there. Uh, those are available up to then. The other good thing about those is that those are using the same test bank that I'll use to pull your questions for the exam. So they're great review for you too. You can take them as many times as you want. And with, with them just being review, they, can, they can't really hurt your grade. They can help you by being a little bit extra credit, but they can't really hurt, hurt anybody. Then the exam is uh, next Thursday as well. So next Thursday, no lecture portion. The lecture portion will be given over to the exam. Once you're done with the exam, I'll have a lab for you. Once you're done with the lab and the exam, you're done. So the exam I have scheduled typically, it's typically scheduled to be about a 50 minute to an hour long lab uh, exam. So don't worry about this. So you, have you should have plenty of time to be able to do that. Then you should have time to do the exam. Some people finish the, the exams quicker. If you finish the exam quicker and the lab quicker, then of course you're done. I'm not, there's nothing else that we're going to be doing that day once we get through those two things. Uh, for the exam, I'm going to jump down here first. I did break down how I'm going to split that up. There are going to be 30 multiple choice questions. So that's 10 from each lesson. 
And I have to lessons, we were talking about this before, uh, lessons and chapters don't line up because some lessons will have more than one chapter associated with them. Early on there's only a couple cases but there'll be some sections later in the course where we'll have two or even three chapters that are part of one lesson. So when I say 30 multiple choice that means there'll be 30 from chapter 1, which was lesson 1, 30, from, not 30, 10. 10 from chapter 1 which is lesson 1, 10 from chapter 4 which is lesson 3, and 10 combined from chapters 2 and 3, so f essentially 5 each from chapter 2 and 3. So less chapters 2 and 3 are considered one lesson. We had those scheduled for one week. So they're no more highly weighted than any others. Chapters 2 and 3 together are one unit for the class. So there will only be 10. I don't want you to waste your time over studying 2 and 3. They're essentially one chapter worth of material. So you'll get 10 questions from those. The review quizzes are broke up the same way. When you take review quiz for one, it's just chapter one questions. The second one does chapters two and three, and the third one does chapter four. So the review quizzes are broken up the same way. So when I say from each lesson, not from chapter, but from lesson. So 10 from one, 10 from two and three, and 10 from four. I will pick out our photos of the day. I'll pick out four to five of those of the ones that we discussed in class which goes through Tuesday of next week. So uh, I think that means there's seven of them. I'll pick four or five of them to uh, pick out a multiple choice question. Those are extra in addition to the 50 points for the exam. So those are actually extra credit. Wouldn't hurt you to take a look, glance at those seven pictures before and have something in your mind on them if you want to, you know, jot a note on your key point sheets if you're going to use those. You know, you could jot a little note that says, oh, this picture was this or something, if there's something that strikes you about it that you think I might ask. Then there are a couple of essays. There is a required essay, which is a couple different parts, which is 10 points. That one you have to answer. Then there is one essay from each lesson. Essays meaning they are, again, homework type questions. So things you can normally answer in a couple of sentences. So. Um, there's one required that's going to have a couple different parts. I think it's four different parts that I have for this one. Then, then there are three essays, one from each lesson. You get to pick two. So you don't have to answer all of them. If you answer all of them, I'm only going to grade your first two. So it's not you get a bonus for answering all three of them. But you can pick any two so that way if one of them is just slips your mind, well, you can skip that one and hopefully the other two are, are better for you. But there will be one essay, again, homework type problems, uh, not problems, homework type questions. Um, in terms of math, again, there will be no math as that we've seen on the labs or that we've seen on, you see on some of the homework questions. That will not be on the exam. I can't say you won't have to do a simple calculation. You might have to multiply two numbers. I don't remember if I have things where you sometimes have to put numbers into scientific notation or you know, you know, show me how to put it into scientific notation or something like that. So there, there can't say you won't see anything, you won't see numbers on it. But you won't have to do any of those, the calculation problems at the end of the first lab where you had to multiply things and all that. So with scientific notation you will not see that kind of thing on the exam. There will be no detailed calculations. Anything would be stuff that you should be able to do. You won't even need a calculator. You have to multiply two numbers together. If I have to have multiply five times three, I expect that you can probably, probably do that. So that kind of thing you might see. I won't even guarantee you will, but you might see that. But you won't see anything like some of the stuff that we've done on the first couple of labs. And in fact, today's lab doesn't have any calculations. So yay. Yes? 
The photo of the day. Astro astronomy photo of the day. Sorry, oh, that's just too long to write. <laughs> Too long to write up. And you can go there. I put, I put it up there each day. If you actually just go into search engine and type APOD, it'll, come, it'll be probably the first hit you come up with. We'll come up with this website. So if you want to go back and look at them. And if you want to see the older pictures, I say it'll always come up with the current day's picture. But if you go down below, there's a link for archive right down below it. And if you click on archive, it'll just list every picture. This scrolls down multiple pages, so you can just go, if you want to look at the other ones that were part of this, you can just look for the dates we met, click on those pictures, or write, and write them down. So if you want to go back and review them, that's a good way to be able to go and, and do it. Uh, that's probably the easiest. You can also use the little arrows here to go back and forth between the pictures, but the archives usually works the, works the best. So again, take a look at those pictures, because they'll probably help a little bit, and even if you don't know them, Make sure you, even if you don't remember it at all, throw a guess on it. You know, they got a, got a, what, a one in four, one in five chance of getting the extra point. It can't hurt you. They are extra credit. So at least guess on them if you're not sure. Do you show like, a picture of it? I won't put the picture on there. It'll be, it'll be a multiple choice question. Oh. So I might say on this day we saw a picture of these nebulae and a comet, which is what we're going to look at in a few minutes. And I might ask you a question, something maybe that I talked about in class or something about the picture. Okay. But nothing. I try not to make them too in-depth. But that doesn't mean that I won't pick something that, why, why is he asking that? <laughs> but again, they're extra credit. So again, you, it's things you should be able to answer. But I won't be, I'm not going to put the pictures back on the exam or anything. But I'm going to uh, just ask a multiple choice question based on it. Okay. Yeah, I know. There's all sorts of stuff. That's why I didn't bother to mark anything late. I figured when there were only five people here when we started that they <laughs> It was pretty bad out there, so, okay. All right, so, other qu questions? I'll leave it up. I'll remind people of right before lab portion to, to take a look at that so we can, in case they did, since they did miss that. All right, well, let's go ahead and look at our picture for today then. Uh, this is another very wide image. I had to condense this down quite a bit to get it on there. This is the comet, oops, there we go. There's a comet, clusters, star clusters, and nebulae. So it's one image that has a whole lot of things. And one of the things that this puts forward is that when you look out at the sky, we talked about the celestial sphere. That's really how things look. It looks like there's this big sphere and everything is stuck to it. You don't see anything three-dimensional here. Can you tell me what's closer and what's further away just by looking at it? You might know a comet's part of our solar system, so it must really be closer than anything else. And it is. Comet is actually really close part of our solar system. But these other objects, you can't look at a star and just tell whether it's close to us or far away. You lose that whole three-dimensional perspective. So as an example here, in this image, we have things that are vastly different distances. We have a couple of star clusters, grouping of stars. You can see there's a little. Uh, excess of stars in these two little areas. These are two star clusters. Those are about 4,000 light years away. So what did they look like today? You've got to wait 4,000 years. The light we're seeing right now is the light that left in, what, 2000 BC? Eh, plus or minus, but roughly. That's roughly how, how long ago we're seeing what they looked like. Have they changed? Probably not. Stars don't change in just a couple thousand years, generally. But they're about 4,000 light years away. 
There's also up above here some nebulae. Nebulae are clouds of, in this case, clouds of gas out in space. And in the, the reddish color is caused by hydrogen gas when you excite it. That's one of the things we're going to look at in the next uh, chapter that talks about how that works. So I'm not going to go into any great detail here. But these two nebulae you know, look like they're nice and close to each other. They may be related to each other. They're not. The one on this side is actually only about 1,500 light years away. It's a lot closer than these star clusters. The one right next to it is 12,000, I think it was. I'm going to double check that I'm reading the right number. 12,000 light years away? Yeah, 12,000 light years away. So almost, not quite, but almost 10 times further away. It doesn't look like it, does it? I mean, I wouldn't, I mean, just looking at them, if, if, you ha if I didn't know what they were or look at the description, I wouldn't know just by looking at them that they're 10 times further away. Which means if you think about it, this is a really massive nebula. Because it looks the same size as this closer one, but it's 10 times further away. Right? If you take something 10 times further away, it's going to look a lot smaller than it is than something closer. So if you actually had these two at the same distance, this one would be 10 times larger. So if it were actually at this distance, it would be massive and it would cover this whole thing. So that's one of the things I wanted to put across here is that you're really seeing things at all different kinds of distances. So you've got stuff within our solar system like the comet. You have things that are just 1,000 light years away. You've got 4,000 light years away for these clusters. And you've got um, 12,000 light years away. So things that are vastly different and they all come up in the same image because everything looks like it's at the same distance to us. When we look at things out in space, we don't see that third dimension. We have to measure it and we have to measure distances and that's one of the things that we'll look at over the rest of the class. We'll look at how we actually measure some of these distances. Questions? All righty. Well, let's go ahead and finish up. Uh, we were almost done with this. I had this and a little one more section to go. So uh, we will go ahead and look. We were just doing Okay, there it goes. Where'd my image go? Uh, tides. So we were just looking at tides. I'd gone through this slide, but I was going to go ahead and back through it just quickly one more time just to kind of review it. Uh, tide, something we're kind of familiar with. If you go onto the beach, you know, you know this, the tide come in, the tide go out. You put your stuff down, you go out in the water and it can end up being washed away or it can end up being, you know, 20, 30 feet away from the water depending on when you happen to put things down and when the, what the high tide was. And the tides are primarily caused by the moon. So, combination of the moon and the sun, but the moon does most of it. And it is a force, it is a gravitational force between the moon and the earth. And generally when we do that calculation, we say the center of the moon versus the center of the earth. For distant objects, if we want to figure out the force between two distant stars, that really works out well. But when objects are close together, like the earth and the moon, there's actually a difference in the force on one side, the side close to the moon, as compared to the so other side. If you calculate the gravitational force between the moon and this portion of the Earth, it's a little bit closer, so it's a little bit larger. On this side, it's a little bit further away from the moon, 
and the gravitational force is a little bit lower. So when you actually go ahead and calculate these and then you reference them to the center, essentially what you do is subtract out this force to find the average force. So if you subtract a small arrow from a bigger arrow, you get a little arrow pointing in this direction. If you take a smaller arrow and subtract a bigger arrow, you get a small arrow, but it's negative. It's pointing in the opposite direction. This is why we get two sets of high tides. You can think of it as the Earth is pulling, essentially the moon is pulling the water away from the Earth on one side, and the combination of the Earth's spin is pushing the water away on the opposite side. So when you look at high tides, you're always going to get them about 12 hours apart. And it's the water that moves, not the rock. Generally, there are some places where tidal forces can be enough to move rock. Not here. There are tides that actually move the rock on the Earth, and it's, you know, centimeters. It's nothing that you're going to be able to notice. It's a very small amount. But it can, it can occur, and in other places where you have stronger gravitational forces, you can get much more uh, important, much stronger tides. But the water flows. So the water can actually flow towards this force, and water that would be up here flows down. Water that would be up here flows down. And you're going to get a higher tide on this side, and a higher tide on this side, and then a low tide, and a low tide. So the tides will change with about a six hour period. You'll go from a high tide to a low tide to a high tide to a low tide. They'll change about every six hours. Now I said the sun does have a part in this, and this is what I didn't get to talk about last time, but the sun also produces a force. It's about half as much as the moon. So the moon gives us most of the tides. But depending on where the sun and the moon are relative to each other, you can either have their tides add together and make unusually strong tides, or you can have them subtract and get unusually low tides. You'll still get high and low tides, but at certain times of year, certain times of month, you will get very high, high tides, unusually high tides. One of those would be coming up here when the moon and the sun are lined up together at new moon or when they're lined up on the other side at full moon. In that case, they're both stretching in the same direction. The tides add up and we get what are called spring tides. Nothing to do with the season, but spring tides just being higher tides than normal. So if you go to the beach during a new moon or a full moon, you'll see that the tides will be higher than, than usual. If you're there for a long time and you're also there for first quarter or third quarter moon, right here, you have the moon pulling in one direction, you have the sun pulling in the other, and at this point the tides are going to work against each other. The sun's pulling you one way, the moon's pulling you another. If the forces were exactly the same, you'd get no tides. They'd cancel. So you could actually, you could, if they were. Now they aren't, the moons are stronger, so you'll actually get high tides still, but there'll be lower high tides. So if you ever go spend a week at the beach, you know, notice, notice the phase of the moon. And you're going to see that the tides are a lot higher during full moon or new moon as compared to qu the quarter phase. In between, they'll be in between. You'll get some various changes. You'll get some other changes there. So uh, the first and third quarter, I didn't give you the name, but we call those the neap tides. So neap tides right here, when the two are working against each other, the tides are not as high as they would otherwise be. Now there's a lot more that goes into the tides depending on where you are on the Earth. Some, some parts of the Earth get almost no tides, regardless of all of this, just because of the geography of where they are. 
So there are some places that will get very, very minimal tides. There are other places that will get more significant tides. So there's a geography uh, and you know the landscape that goes into this as well to some extent. But this is one. This is one thing. If we just ignore it and just look at in general when we're going to get the highest tides and we're going to get the lowest tides, you're going to see the biggest tides at the full and new moon phases. All right. So that's what we were finishing up last time. And then we have one more section here, but let me go over the summary. We had talked in this section about the phases of the moon last time. And it really depends on where the moon and the sun are relative to each other in the sky. Remember that half the moon is always illuminated and we can always see half the moon. So it depends on what portion of that illuminated portion, a part of the moon we're actually seeing. That will tell us what the phase will be. Specific phases are only visible at specific times of day. If you go out at noon and look for a full moon, you're never going to find one. Full moon is always opposite to the sun in the sky, so you can't see it until the sun sets. So specific phases, other ones, we talked a little bit about first and third quarter. First quarter moon is the one that's visible in the evening. Third quarter moon is the one that's visible only in the morning. So if you're seeing half a moon illuminated and it's six in the evening, you know it's first quarter. If it's six in the morning and you see half the moon illuminated, then you know that it's third quarter. So you can actually tell the specific time by looking at the phase of the moon. And then we finished up looking at the tides. It's caused by the differential pull of the moon and the sun on the Earth. So primarily the moon, but the sun does count for some portion of the tide. And it's the water that moves in response to the force. So if you had stronger gravitational objects, we had things like black holes that we'll talk about later. Now, a black hole can actually distort and rip things apart with its tidal forces. So moon can't rip us apart. Its gravitational force isn't strong enough. But there are objects out there that could do this. Jupiter has a much stronger gravity. It can stretch its moons a lot more than the Earth and the moon system do. So there are places, and we'll see it coming up, where tides are much more significant. All right. So the last part of this section and the last part for the exam would be eclipses. So we want to look at eclipses here. We had a nice one just about a year ago. Uh, if you got a chance to, to see that, that's last August. Um, the reason we get eclipses, and as of right now, we really don't know of any place else that has eclipses. No other planet you'd go to would get eclipses like the Earth. Maybe there is one out there someplace, but and we haven't been able to determine any others. Certainly nothing else in our solar system that would have eclipses like the Earth's. And it's, it's because of a coincidence that the moon and the sun, as seen from the Earth, happen to have the same size. They look about the same size in the sky. In fact, they're very, very close to being the same size. They're about half a degree. And that means that the moon can just block out the sun. If the moon were 20 times larger than the sun in the sky, then it would easily block it out. And it would probably block it out every month. And it wouldn't be such a big deal because eclipses would happen all the time. It would be a regular occurrence. But because they're so close to being the same size, the, o- size, the only time you get a perfect eclipse is when they're almost exactly lined up. And in fact, the longest you can get is about 11 or 12 minutes. That's about the longest that the moon can possibly block out the sun. So it's a very rare event. You don't see them very often. 
In fact, any given location on the Earth will see a total eclipse about every eight, nine hundred years. So, you know, the odds are in your lifetime, if you, unless you go to see an eclipse, you're not going to happen to have one at your location. Now, it can happen, but it's, uh, it's rare. And around here, I don't know of an eclipse that's scheduled to be here in any time in the near future. A total soul, total eclipse. Now, there's eclipses are two types that we're going to look at. There are solar eclipses, which means the moon passes in front of the sun. That's what we're looking at here. Those are the rarer ones. They're harder to see. You've got to be in exactly the right spot. And there are lunar eclipses. Lunar eclipses, the moon passes into the Earth's shadow. Those are a lot easier to see. Because all you have to do is be in the right spot on the Earth. In fact, if the lunar eclipse occurs during your nighttime, you can see it. As long as you can see the moon, you can see the lunar eclipse. So a lunar eclipse is a lot easier, easier to see. In terms of the geometry, there's some terminology I want to give you. Uh, this is for an example of a lunar eclipse. And in a lunar eclipse, you have the sun here casting its light all the way out in space. And the Earth, this big solid object, blocks out its light. Right? Any solid object you put out in, in light is casting a shadow. Right? If we're standing in the sunlight, we can look down and see our shadow. Well, the Earth does the same thing. The Earth here, right behind the Earth, you're not going to have any sunlight reaching uh, area around there. And if the moon happens to pass into that shadow, that's when we're going to get an eclipse. So the terminology I wanted to give you was the umbra is this very dark portion of shadow. If you're standing in that, the moon, the Earth in this case, is completely blocking the sun. So the Earth completely blocks out the sun. You don't see any sunlight if you're in this dark part of the shadow. You also have the penumbra. The penumbra, you notice how this one cone goes down to a point here. This one kind of widens out. If you're in the penumbra, you're in partial shadow. That means the Earth is blocking out part of the sun. I'm blocking out part of the light, but not all of the light. Some of the light's still reaching me. So you could block out part of that. That would be, you'd, you'd, things would get a little bit dimmer. The moon wouldn't be getting as much light because it wouldn't be getting the full sunlight. So it would look a little bit dimmer. But it wouldn't go completely dark as it would during a total eclipse. Now, that's a lunar eclipse example. We can also look at the same thing for a solar eclipse. Okay. Um, solar eclipse. Now, a solar eclipse, the geometry is a little different. In a lunar eclipse, we had the sun, moon, earth lined up directly. In a solar eclipse, we have the sun and the earth, but now the moon is in between. So the moon is in between them, and the moon, just like the earth, is solid object, so it casts a shadow. So that shadow will cast back from the moon. If that shadow happens to fall on the earth, then the region on the earth that reaches that, that shadow reaches, is going to give us an eclipse. So we're going to see a solar eclipse if you happen to be on this region here. In this case, it's showing the western part of Africa is seeing the eclipse. Now one of the differences is when you look at a lunar eclipse, the Earth's a lot bigger, so its shadow's a lot bigger. So the moon can actually fit easily within the Earth's shadow. In a solar eclipse, the moon's a lot smaller. So its shadow is smaller and it doesn't reach the entire Earth. Question? The one that happened last summer, yes. where was the umbra and, and 
The Umbra traced a path on the Earth going from out in Oregon across the United, well it actually went out in the Pacific, but across the land, it went from across Oregon down through like St. Louis area and then out through the Carolinas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you have to be right in that, you had to be right in that path. That means because it went through Oregon, you had to be on that 20 some mile path. So if you were a little bit away from there, 50 mi if you were 50 miles away, it would block out a lot of the light, but not all of it. Even up here, I noticed it. I was up, I was in York during the eclipse. I didn't travel to go see it, mainly because it was the kids' first day of school. So <laughs> couldn't really go traveling, have them miss their first day of school. Uh, but we saw, I noticed during the maximum part of the eclipse, it got a little duskier. Now you might not have noticed it or thought about it if you weren't paying attention to the eclipse, but I noticed it. It's like, hey, it's getting a little dusky. I can tell. But you really, in order to see any significant change, you've got to be right on that path. If you're not right on the path, it might get a little bit darker. The closer you are to the path, the more it'll get. But you have, to be, you have to be in that umbra. You have to be right in the right spot to really be able to see a total eclipse. That's the only way you're going to be able to see it. So the penumbra Oops. is when it just gets a tiny, tiny bit darker. It gets part of it. If you were in the penumbra, which was where you would have been, where we would have been, anybody in York would have been. And then if you'd looked up at the sun, with protective glasses, proper kinds, and et cetera, um, you'd see that the sun and the moon was partially blocking out the sun. Not completely. But you would see it partially blocked. And I'll show some pictures of it coming up. I'm going to show some images. So let's look at the solar eclipses. So I wanted to give you the geometry first of how things work, but let's look at some pictures of these and the different types we can get of eclipses. Because eclipses aren't all one type. If you'd, been on, if you'd been in the right part of the US where the umbra touched the ground, you would have seen this. You would have seen the moon directly in front of the sun blocking out all of its light. So you would not see any of what we call the surface of the sun. Now you do see some things. The sun does have an atmosphere like the Earth. So the moon blocks out the surface, which is where all the bright light comes from. But we can see the atmosphere. Normally we can't see this because the rest of this is overwhelmingly bright. It's always there. When you look at the sun, there's always an atmosphere around it. But unless you block out the really bright portion of the sun, you can't see that. So in the case of a total solar eclipse, this is what you would have blocked out. The moon completely blocks out the sun, and it would get dark. If you're on the umbra, it would actually get dark. It would be nighttime. Stars would come out. I mean, it would get that dark if you're actually in there. Only for a couple minutes, but it would actually get that dark. It's completely blocked out. So you would look up and you'd see this glow in the sky, but you would not see any sunlight at all for those few minutes. Now you can get a partial eclipse. Now most of the United States saw a partial eclipse. So unless you happened to be in the right spot or planned to be in the right spot, you didn't see that. You would have seen something more like this. Here we have the disk of the sun. So this is actually the disk of the sun. Notice you don't see any of that atmosphere. It's there. You just can't see it. But the moon is blocking part of it. So in some cases, the moon may block part and just block, end up blocking half the sun. If it blocks half the sun, you're not even going to notice how that it gets darker. In fact, you could be through an eclipse where half the sun is blocked. And if you didn't happen to glance at the sun for some reason or know about it, you'd never even know. When you start getting up to 70 and 80%, it starts to get a little duskier. When you start to get in the 90, 95% of the sun blocked, where you're only seeing a little sliver of the sunlight, 
then it starts to get pretty dark. You start to see a big difference. You would notice it. And of course, you've got to get to 100% for it to get really dark. So partial solar eclipses are relatively common. You get them every few years. We've had a couple over the last, we've had a few that have been visible from here over the last decade. This last one was one of the big ones in 2017. But there have been plenty of There have been plenty of them that do occur, and there will be more coming up. Um, in fact, the next big one will be in 2024, but there'll be other ones that are somewhat visible as well. So those are two types of eclipses. You can get total or you can get partial. Now the other thing you can get is what we call an annular eclipse. Annular, don't confuse it with annual. It doesn't mean it happens yearly. It means it's annular or a ring. And that actually happens something like this. In this case, there's the moon. And we still see this glow around it, but the glow is not the atmosphere, but it's actually the disk of the sun. There are times, remember something further away looks smaller, right? The moon is in an elliptical orbit, just like everything else in the solar system. That means sometimes it's closer to Earth and looks a little bigger. Supermoon, right? They make a big deal about every time there's a supermoon when the moon is, full moon is really close to the Earth and it's supposed to look unusually big. Looks a little bit, does look a little bit bigger. But there are also times where they call the mini-moon. The moon is a lot further away from the Earth, and it's going to look a little bit smaller. Because the moon and the sun are so close in size, if the moon is, far, is at its furthest when an eclipse occurs, it's a little smaller than the sun. So even if they line up perfectly, you have the moon there, but you can still see a ring of actual material of sun. So you see a ring of sunlight, not the atmosphere, but the actual disk of the sun. You can still see that. So it wouldn't get quite as dark. You're not blocking out all the sunlight. It would depend on how much, how far away the moon is, and how big this uh, ring is. And all that really means is that the moon is more distant from the Earth. It's further away. It's going to look smaller. It's not quite blocking out all of the sunlight. So with a solar eclipse, you can get these three. You can either get a total solar eclipse if you're in the right position on the Earth. You can get a partial if you're in another region around that. But even that eclipse that occurred last August, it was nice if you were in North America. But if you were down in South America, you didn't see anything. Even though the sun was lit, you didn't even see a partial eclipse. You have to really be in the right position. That's one of the things that makes the eclipses so rare, that those two are so close in size and that the moon, they're just the right size that the moon's shadow barely reaches the Earth. Again, if eclipses were common, they wouldn't have been such a big deal. If an eclipse happened you know, three or four times, you've had a total solar eclipse three or four times in your lifetime over generations, it would be, oh yeah, we know eclipses are coming. They happen all the time. When it happens once in multiple generations, it's a big deal. So that's a solar eclipse. The one that you get to see a little bit more is a lunar eclipse. So we can get three types of lunar eclipses as well. A lunar eclipse can be total, which means that the entire moon went into the umbra of the Earth and disappeared. The moon's actually there, right? The moon didn't disappear. Why? Well, the Earth has this thing called an atmosphere around it. So it's not just a solid ball. If the Earth were a solid ball with no atmosphere, during a total lunar eclipse, the moon would be gone. It would disappear, and you'd look for the moon, and it would not be there. But because we have an atmosphere, light kind of sneaks through the atmosphere. It gets bent by the atmosphere. And the light that gets bent the easiest and makes it through the atmosphere is the red. So actually, the umbra of the Earth isn't dark. It's filled with the dark red light. So sometimes they call this the blood moon 
because it's all the red light from the sun that's squeaking through the Earth's atmosphere and filling the umbra. If we had a, if we had no atmosphere, that wouldn't happen. That's only because of the Earth's atmosphere. So if we had no atmosphere, the moon would just disappear. You wouldn't see that red color. That's only because of the Earth's atmosphere. So I say the moon is completely in the umbra. I say it disappears completely, but it really doesn't. Now you'll notice that there's some kind of a range in brightness here. Depending on how deep you are into the umbra, you're going to get more or less light coming through. So this part up here is very deep in the umbra. Very little light is coming through. It's a very deep red. This part is in the umbra, but very close to the edge. So you're getting more and more light coming through. So sometimes you can see that, but generally you'll see a nice deep red moon during a lunar eclipse. Now a partial lunar eclipse is same kind of thing, more like a partial solar. You don't see as much. In fact, you can see up here the moon's almost gone because of the brightness here. You can't really see, even see the deep red color. But this part is actually outside of the umbra. So part of the moon is, in fact, a big chunk of it might be in this case, but a little bit of it is still getting direct sunlight. So still a cool sight to see. The more of it that's there, the better. The more of it that gets into the umbra, the better you're going to be able to see. You will see a partial lunar eclipse as an eclipse occurs, as the Earth moves into the umbra. It can start off being partial, 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 and then eventually it will reach the total phase. But you can also have just a partial eclipse where the moon just kind of skims the Earth's shadow. And then finally you can get what we call, you can't get an annular eclipse because the moon's shadow is too big. Earth's shadow is too big, so the Earth's shadow will always completely cover the moon. Either the moon moves into it, or it does not fully move into it, but there's no case where the Earth's shadow is going to be so small that it doesn't quite completely cover the moon. So you can't get an annular eclipse with the moon, but you can get what we call a penumbral eclipse. And this is an example, and I had to put both pictures up here to make sure you could really see the difference. In this case, this is, there's the moon. Here's the moon doing it during a penumbral eclipse. This little portion up here is in the deeper part of the penumbra, closer to the umbra, but never actually hit it. So they won't normally make a big deal about these on the news like they do with a total solar eclipse, or sometimes you know, they're going to talk about a total lunar eclipse coming. These ones aren't really any big deal. The moon will get a little bit fainter, but you really won't see anything amazing with it. You won't see any, you know, the blood moon will not appear, any of that other stuff will not appear. All right, so eclipses. So we get the eclipses can only also occur at certain times. And I should have mentioned this when I showed the geometry. But because of the way they're lined up, the only time you can get a lunar eclipse is during full moon because the Earth's shadow pushes straight back from the sun, right? It's going to be opposite the object. And the only time when the moon is back there behind the Earth, it's always full moon because the Earth, moon, and sun are lined up. So the only time you can get a lunar eclipse is during full moon. The only time you can get a solar eclipse is during new moon. The moon has to be in the same direction as the sun or they're not going to line up. Now, we get a new moon every month. We get a full moon every month. But we don't get an eclipse every month. Not even somewhere on the Earth. There are times where there is simply no eclipse. The moon and the sun are too far, do not come close together. And that's because the orbits are tilted a little bit. So if we look at these, we have the path of the sun in yellow, the path of the moon in the gray. 
Sometimes they go above or below the other. The moon's orbit is tilted relative to the sun. So sometimes the moon can be as much as five degrees above the sun or five degrees below the sun. It's tilted by about five degrees. So you don't always get an eclipse because, remember, they're only half a degree in size. So if you have something half a degree and half a degree and they're five degrees apart, they're not passing anywhere close to each other. Even if they're two degrees apart, they're still passing way above or below each other. They've got to be lined up almost perfectly. And there are two times of the year that that will occur, and we call those the nodes, where the two orbits intersect. So if a full moon or new moon occurs while the moon is near a node of its orbit, then we can get an eclipse. If the full moon or new moon occurs over here or over here, you can't get an eclipse. The moon's going to be way above the sun or way below the sun, and the eclipse will not occur. If the two were lined up perfectly, if the moon's orbit were not tilted at all, then you would. Then you would get a solar eclipse every time. Every new moon would be a solar eclipse. Every full moon would be a lunar eclipse. Doesn't mean you'd see it, because if the solar eclipse occurred at 3 a.m. our time, we're not going to see it, right? Sun's not usually up at 3 a.m. for us. If the lunar eclipse occurred at 2 in the afternoon, we're not going to see it. But somewhere on the world, you'd be able to see an eclipse if this tilt did not, did not occur. If the moon's orbit were not tilted just this small amount. Uh, so the more it's tilted, the more or less it's tilted would tell you how many eclipses you're likely to get. Now there are some patterns to this as well. We have, I mean, eclipses have been predicted for a long time. We've been able to predict eclipses. We can do them really precisely now. I could tell you 200 years out, 1,000 years out that there's going to be an eclipse on this day. And I'd be very certain that if you went to that day, you'd find your eclipse. If you went to that day in the right location. But even long ago, we knew that there was a pattern to eclipses. And we call that the Cero cycle. That pretty much similar eclipses occur with this period of 18 years, 11 days, and 8 hours. So that means you'd get roughly the same eclipse about every 18 years. But that eight hours throws us off. That doesn't mean we had an eclipse here in 2017. That means 18 years later, in what, 2035, there's going to be a very similar eclipse to the one that occurred in 2017. But eight hours. The Earth turned, so it's going to be a third of the way around the Earth from us. So we're not going to see it. However, three cycles later, we would see another similar eclipse. So 18 plus 18 plus 18 would be 54 years and a month. So uh, 2017 plus 54 would be what? 2071 and another month would put it into September. So September of 2071, there'll be another eclipse that goes pretty much across the US might go up into Canada. There's some slight variations. It's not going to be perfectly exactly like it was. But every three cycles, then those eight hours add up to a full day and it comes back to the same spot. So roughly, again, there are some variations, so it's not exactly predictable that I, just by this. But you could tell that there's a better chance, when there's a better chance of an eclipse occurring. All right, so observing an eclipse. I'm sorry? <laughs> and I'd have to look up. I should look up and see how that one compares to the one we had. I mean, there's slight variations and wobbles so that you know, it could go through Canada instead of the US. It could go down through Central America. And I don't know without actually looking that one up. Um, I'd be over 100, so. 
Um, so observing an eclipse. How do you go about observing an eclipse? With a lunar eclipse, it's easy. You don't need anything. You just go out there and look at it. So lunar eclipse can't possibly hurt you. There's nothing intrinsically dangerous about an eclipse. And in fact, there's nothing more dangerous about a solar eclipse than any other time looking at the sun. So an eclipse, it's not something that the eclipse makes things dangerous, except that the moon is blocking out part of the sun, which means this is cool, I want to look at it. And it's also, if you block out a big chunk of the sun, it's not as painful. If you try to go look at the sun on a nice sunny day, which we haven't seen for a week or so, but if you try to go look at the sun, you instinctively, you know, your self-preservation kicks in and you shield your eyes because it's so overwhelmingly bright. So it's really never safe to look at the surface of the sun, whether it be an eclipse or not an eclipse. You don't really want to look at that directly. However, there are some ways that you can do it. There are things like a pinhole camera, a piece of cardboard with a little pinhole in it, and you can actually adjust it and you can get a nice image, and that's perfectly safe to look at. There's no problem looking at that. Uh, you can use solar filters. Those are very specific filters that are used. So I know they did some, they sold like specific glasses that you could use for the eclipse. Uh, but you want to be careful with it because things like sunglasses won't block out enough light. If you ever tried looking through a pair of the eclipse glasses and try looking at anything other than the sun, you see nothing. I mean, you can put them on and you can look straight ahead or at other bright lights and you see nothing. They are specifically designed to weed out almost all of the light. Yeah? I know a lot of people use welding masks. Welding can do a little bit better if it's a certain type of welding. It's still, you still have to be careful with it. It's possible, but I know there's certain types and ha you want to make sure they're blocking out the right kind of light because it can damage and every eclipse there are people who have you know, permanently damaged their eyes. Essentially what it will do is you get a memento of the eclipse, you get it permanently burned into your retina. So it can actually, you know, it can actually cause significant damage. So you don't want to sit there and stare. You want to look at it properly but things like you know, sunglasses will definitely not help you. Um, the other thing that you can do and I qualify this very carefully but the totally eclipse sun that image I showed with the if you're in the total eclipse and the total eclipse is occurring, you can look at the sun just fine. However, you don't want to get it right before or right after when even a little bit of the sun is visible. I mean, it's just amazing how much energy the sun puts out. Even that little tiny sliver of sunlight can damage your eyes. So even during the total phase, you're still better off looking, observing it with something else. You're still much better off because you've got to know exactly when that eclipse is starting and ending at your location. You know, you don't want to sit there and stare because it is. When, the, when it's just first coming in or out of eclipse, that last little sliver, it's not painful to look at. So you could sit there and stare at it. Right? You can't stare at the, the sun when it's not eclipsed. You just can't. Maybe it's rising or setting, but you're looking through a lot more atmosphere. That's different. But you just can't stare at the sun. Here you actually could. During something like this, you could actually stare at the sun and that's when it causes the damage and that's why, we get, that's why they always warn you about don't look at the sun during an eclipse. Alright, the next big one though, I didn't put up on there, is April the 8th, 2024. If you're going to be in the eastern half of the U.S., it's going to be really nice. It comes up through Mexico and Texas and then goes out into, northern, into Canada, uh, into the eastern provinces of Canada. It'll be a little bit better for the York area than the last one. I think we're almost up to 90%, but you've got to get up into, uh, into like New York and Ontario to actually get it to be at 100 so there is a chance you can also go further west um, into 
where does it go through? It goes through like Buffalo and Cleveland and then down towards St. Louis as it kind of curves down into there. You can pull up, you know, go, go online, look at the April 8, 2024 eclipse and you can actually find a map that shows exactly where the path would be. So if it's someplace you're going to be in 2024, you've got another chance to be able to see a nice eclipse. Uh, lunar eclipses I'd have to look up. We just had a nice one, but we were the ones who could not see it. It was like visible every place except for North America. Every other place in the world got at least some of it. We got nothing. Uh, it was last month. All right, so finishing up this chapter, again, we talked about two types of eclipses, solar and lunar. Solar eclipses, the moon passes in front of the sun, blocking out its light. Lunar eclipses, the moon passes into the Earth's shadow, and it's the thing that actually gets dimmed. Uh, they do not occur every month, but there are some predictable patterns that we can use. So there are some patterns that we can use to predict these. Alrighty, uh, questions? Okay, well that is everything for the exam. And let's see, we've got what, about 50, we've got about the lab time left. So I'm not going to, I was going to go ahead and see if I could get started on the next chapter, but I'm going to wait. I'll just try to get through chapter 5 on Tuesday. Uh, before the exam. So we will be covering chapter 5 next time. Chapter 5 will not be on the exam. So the exam is still going to be on Thursday with the lab. So we are going to cover it. You can get all that information, but you don't need to worry about studying any of that for the exam. But that's what I will go over. And for those who had all the fun getting here, I think we started off with five. We've got almost everybody here now it looks like. I put the exam information up for next week. 30 multiple choice questions, 10 of them from each lesson. Not chapter, from each lesson. So lesson one is chapter one. Lesson two covers chapters two and three. Lesson three covers chapter four. So there'll be 10 questions from chapter one, five from two, five from three, and 10 from four. There is a required essay, which is I think four parts this time. That doesn't mean, I mean again, essays for me mean a couple sentences to answer. Uh, there'll be one that you'll be doing there that's 10 points. And then there's three essays, one from each lesson, and you choose two of those to answer. So if one of them doesn't, just slips your mind at the day of the exam, you can skip one and answer two. You don't get any bonus for answering all three. In fact, if you answer all three, I just grade the first two. Uh, just to, so I'm not trying to decide which one you meant to answer. So I'll put instructions as to that on the, ex on the exam. Should take you... People generally finish these within about 30 to 50 minutes. If it takes you a little bit longer, that's fine. If you finish it earlier, as soon as you finish it, you can turn it in. I can give you the, I can give you the lab to work on. So depending on how fast you go on exams, if you're a quick exam taker, you might be done a little bit early on Thursday. If you're slower, you still have time, should have plenty of time to be able to do the exam. All right, questions? All righty then. Well, 